0: From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. Today's program is going to feel a little bit meta, and that's because we're going to talk about how to talk about the climate crisis. This is a conversation I'm really looking forward to because I've spent more than a decade writing about and making TV about these issues, and I still don't understand the best way to approach it all of the time. There's this existential threat looming not on the horizon, but right above us. How do we get people to care enough to fix it?
1: In recent months, climate emergencies have been declared by Canada and a number of other countries. I'm sure you've heard them. Cities have also sounded the alarm. Well, this morning, in a brand new declaration, 11,000 scientists from 153 countries are bolstering that claim. Here's some of what's in that...
0: I understand pretty much all of their reactions to this. Sometimes I get incredibly depressed or angry about what's happening to the world. And I find it so frustrating that politics has come to divide us on this issue. When climate change shouldn't be political, it's really an issue of science.
1: Today, we now know that where we fall on the political spectrum is the number one predictor of whether we agree with the science of climate change. It's nothing to do with Mm -hmm. how smart we are or how much science we know.
0: That's Catherine Hayhoe, our guest interview today. She's a climate scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech University. And she really is the perfect person to talk to when it comes to the way we talk about climate change. One reason for that is that Catherine is actually married to an evangelical pastor who used to be a climate skeptic. Over time, she's managed to help change his mind about the science.
1: Here's the key. We already knew that we shared so many of our values... We already knew that the other person was a good person. We already respected each other. Mm. And we knew each other. didn't. Ha- we didn't have bad motives. We, we were smart. We understood data. So we were able to have a really honest conversation where we dug together into the information. And it wasn't an overnight thing. It wasn't a sudden decision. It was an ongoing conversation. And today we still have conversations over solutions. But that was really um, my very first opportunity to learn how to have these constructive, positive conversations conversations. And it provided me with the tools and the ability and the information that I needed to then share with others.
0: Later on in the program, we're going to speak with a Belgian journalist who's exploring virtual reality as a way to engage audiences about the climate crisis. But first, back to Catherine Hayhoe. She's expanded on her personal experience and now is one of the leading public authorities when it comes to climate communication. She regularly gives talks to folks in deep red states and other places where going green is seen as political treason. As she told me, her secret weapon when it comes to communicating about the climate crisis is to try to break down the barriers that might exist between her and the audience.
1: So when I first started to talk to people about climate change, which was when I moved to Texas and I started to get invitations from curious community groups, I would explain the science and then people would say, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And that kind of took me aback. I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm a scientist. We diagnose the problem. We don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> but... I realized, you know, you can't go telling people about a problem and not offer solutions. So I had to sit down myself and think, what should we be doing about this? Hmm. I mean, we hear about light bulbs and recycling. We hear about eating lower down the food chain and plant-based diets. We hear about electric cars and doing energy audits in our home and getting good windows and insulation. We hear about these things. But we sort of innately recognize that these are not at the scale of the solutions we need to fix a global problem. Hmm. A global problem where a handful of organizations and corporations, I think 100 companies, have been responsible for 70% of global carbon emissions since the beginning of the industrial era. Wow, yeah. uh, me changing a light bulb is not going to fix that. <laughs> so while I certainly do advocate for personal individual solutions, and I do a number of them myself, looking at the polling data of public opinion... I realized that most people would agree that climate change is real. Most people agree it would affect plants and animals and future generations and people who live in countries far away. But when you start to dig down, we don't think it affects us personally. And even more telling, we don't talk about it or ever really hear anybody else talk about it either. Hmm. And here's the connection. If we don't talk about something, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we act? So that's why I became increasingly convinced to the point where when they asked me to do a TED talk, I said, This is what I want to do the TED talk on. (laughs) I became convinced that talking about it is the most powerful thing we can do because we all have a voice. We can use that voice to have individual conversations that actually trigger a true positive feedback effect that's been documented in the science, where the more you talk about it, the more we know, the more we know, the more concerned we are, the more concerned we are, the more we talk about it. We also know the social science tells us that friends and family are the best and most effective and most trusted messengers on this Hmm. and we also know that we can join organizations that amplify our voice and we can use our voice to advocate for change at every level in our school our business our corporation our church our community group our city our state and also at the federal level our voice really is the most powerful weapon we have in this fight against climate change
0: I like that you mentioned that these conversations happen in various places right around the family dinner table also in the you know in the news media we're having a conversation about <laughs> about this right now obviously how do you think of the sort of public conversation's role in the the media's role in that in shaping or not the way that we think about this issue and i guess kind of connected to that is like do you think that there's some blame on the news media for the fact that there's not been enough of a public conversation on the climate crisis. Mm
1: Well, I think the, the media, again, like social media too, is a tool that can be used uh, for good or not. <laughs> <laughs> and in the past, back a few years ago, in the media, there was this perception of the need for false balance. The idea that if you're going to quote somebody saying climate change is real and this is serious, you had to go dig up somebody who was saying the opposite. Mm-hmm. Even though on one side you have 10,000 scientists, and on the other side you have five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back a few years ago, that was an issue. Nowadays, thankfully, it is not as much of an issue anymore, but what we often see now today is a lot of missed opportunities. In other words, the reason why we care about climate change is because it is, as the US military calls it, it's a threat multiplier. It affects almost every aspect of our lives today. It affects our health. It affects the economy. It affects our food and our water and our resources. It affects political stability. It even affects refugee crises. It affects everything we already care about today. And so, what's happening is I feel like often we're missing opportunities to connect the dots to issues that we already care about, that we're already paying attention to, and how climate change is exacerbating those issues are making them worse. Hmm. So it can be something pretty obvious, like the Australian wildfires, where the connection is very obvious, but it can be something a little bit more subtle, where, for example, in 2011, a massive flood in Thailand which was made worse, not initiated, but made worse by a changing climate, because we know that heavy rainfall is increasing in a warmer world. It turns out that's where fifty percent of the world's um, of of a, a piece that's key to the world's hard drives was manufactured. So all of a sudden, production on hard drives was cut off. It doubled the prices. It affected Apple and hewitt Packard and all kinds of companies here in the U.S. So just. Those types of stories, often we haven't connected the dots so that people who are reading the business pages or people who are reading the entertainment or the lifestyle pages or the health pages, so that they can understand how climate change is already affecting every aspect of our lives today.
0: I mean, you mentioned earlier that we're getting better at realizing that things happening elsewhere, other parts of the world, like other people, you know, other natural systems, that, that those things are changing. Why do you think it's so hard for us to make the connection to ourselves and our own communities?
1: it's that issue of psychological distance um, in space and in time. We feel like it matters to the polar bears or to people who live far away, Hmm. or we feel like it matters to future generations and not us. And part of that is our human psychology. (laughs) You know, we always think it's going to happen to somebody else, right? I mean, we don't save enough money for retirement. We don't eat as healthy as we should. We don't exercise as much as we should. We (laughs) always think, oh, yes, I know I know technically (laughs) that this affects us. (laughs) So part of it is just who we are, unfortunately. And part of it, too, is that this, is changing so quickly because 10 or 15 years ago if you lived in the lower 48 you'd be hard pressed to put your finger in a way that climate change was directly affecting your life in a noticeable and negative way As opposed to, you know, if you lived up in the Arctic or if you lived on a low-lying island in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. But today we can put our finger on that. But that has changed very quickly. And so for a lot of people, they're still putting the pieces together. And that's where I think the media can play a key part is in helping to connect those puzzle pieces, helping to connect the dots, helping to show that, hey, I know we've always had hurricanes. We've always had wildfires. We've always had floods. But in a warmer world, these are getting much more dangerous, more intense, more devastating. And here's how much more it's costing us in insurance and damages and taxes, in things like that.
0: You know, as people start connecting the dots, because I do think some segment of the American public is beginning to connect those things a little more. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk to people a lot who say that they feel almost paralyzed by that information, that it just seems so over, overwhelming that the world is headed in this more dangerous, more unstable direction. That's like a deeply unsettling thing Mm -hmm. for people when it really registers with them. So tell me about that, like how to avoid sort of the doom and like the fatalism that can come with really understanding the magnitude of what's happening to the planet.
1: Yes. Well, that I'm so glad you brought that up because that is the second key area where I feel like the media can really help to contribute. And that is by sharing, encouraging good news stories of solutions, of building resilience, of transition to clean energy, of new things that people are creating to help us. Uh, move forwards into a better future rather than a worse one, these stories really matter. And unfortunately, a lot of our news these days is it's a business, and so it's built off clicks, right? And the bad news, the frustrating news, the frightening news, the scary news, that gets the clicks, But what I found is when I share things on social media, uh, often people are so desperate for hope. We're all desperate for hope in this world that when I do share a positive story and I go out of my way to look for and share positive stories on a regular basis, Mm. people are so encouraged by that. And they feel like, oh, my goodness, you know, if this is what's happening in a really poor country in sub-Saharan Africa that's revolutionizing people's lives with pay-as-you-go solar or something like that, well, that's amazing. I mean, that's so fantastic because I didn't even realize we had hope like that Mm. or just Just even sharing the fact that individual actions that we can make really do build up. Like the whole idea that if, you know, if everybody just changed one light bulb to LED, which would actually save you money over no longer than a few months compared to an old incandescent bulb, that would be the equivalent of taking almost a million cars off the road. So just Talking about these things that people are doing and and the amazing actions cities are taking to build resilience, to build a more healthy environment, I find that when I look for these stories, they're often not headline stories. They're often buried stories. And when I share them with people, nobody knows. They say, wow, I've never heard of this before. (laughs) But these are the stories that we need because for hope, we have to go out and we have to find those hopeful stories. And understanding that other people are acting gives us the courage and the hope to act too. And by acting together, that is where we find hope.
0: So one of the debates, I think, within the media in the last year or two has been about the terms that we use when we talk about climate change or global warming. I mean, that that was sort of, you know, one of the debates that happened. But but lately, a lot of big news organizations, starting with The Guardian, the, the British newspaper, have started saying, climate crisis or climate emergency when they refer to this topic in favor of the slightly more neutral sounding climate change or, or global warming. Um, I, I wonder what you think about that debate. It strikes me as a really interesting one. And I, I've I've been in rooms where journalists have gotten in really heated um, <laughs> conversations about, you know, which is the right way to be framing what's happening.
1: That's a really good question. Um, Words matter a lot. And in fact, interestingly, back in the time of President George W. Bush, Frank Luntz, who is a very knowledgeable and very savvy PR person, actually wrote an infamous memo now to the Bush administration advising them to replace the words global warming with climate change because it sounded less alarming. Hmm. And their goal was for people to be less alarmed about it (laughs) rather than more. So words absolutely have power. But even with the words global warming, then people just assume it's all about the world getting warmer. And they don't understand, well, how does that connect to stronger hurricanes or more heavy rainfall or even bigger snowstorms, which are a symptom in some parts of the world of a changing climate. So in that sense, it kind of misleads people too. It also leads them to say, well, it's cold outside. So where's global warming now? Look, it just snowed. (laughs) So In my opinion, there is no right term for every circumstance. In fact, Mm. sometimes, especially in conservative places like here in the heart of Texas, I give entire presentations without even mentioning the words climate and change in sequence, but Mm. getting across the concepts and ideas crystal clear. And I do that because the first time I tried it, just as an experiment, to an audience that I knew was pretty sensitive to this topic, I gave this whole presentation on climate impacts, long-term trends, future changes, I even showed climate model projections, but I never said those two words together and I will never forget at the end, this woman came running up to me and she grabbed my hand and she shook it enthusiastically and she said, I agree with everything you said, it just makes sense. Those people who talk about global warming, I don't agree with them at all, but this of course this, this makes great. sense. So I do think that words matter, and I think that depending on who we're talking to, there's different words that are more appropriate. Mm -hmm. So the climate crisis is a phrase that has risen to prominence in recent years, and I think it does accurately capture the fact that this is a crisis. A crisis means you need to make a decision now to avoid some very dangerous impacts, and that is a definition that perfectly describes climate change. For some people, though, using that language is a turnoff. And so if it's a turnoff, then I think a different phrase would work better for them. Um, The one I'm not a particular fan of is climate emergency, because emergency suggests that we could fix it really quickly. And unfortunately, (laughs) with climate change, we can't. We're in it for the long haul, which is why we need that courage and that hope. Um, But personally, when I had to name my YouTube series, I decided to call it Global Weirding. Um, I love it because it really captures what we as individuals are seeing in the places where we live. Things are just getting weird. You know, it's hot when it shouldn't be. It's dry when it shouldn't be. It's wetter than it should be. The storms are stronger than they should be. Things are just weird. And a couple of years ago, when we were trying to figure out what to name the series, I was standing in line at church um, to pick up my son from Sunday school. And the man behind me, who I, I knew sort of, he turned to me, he said, you know, he said, I've lived here for 30 years, he said, and the weather is just getting weird. Anybody who <laughs> says it isn't doesn't know. They're not paying attention. You can see it. And I thought to myself, there we go. That's the title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and it sounds like you're hopeful that we can tackle those problems. What, what gives you that, that assurance? Mm.
1: Well, it's not the science. Because every time a new scientific report comes out, it seems like things are changing faster to a greater extent than we thought. And it isn't the politics either. Every time we look at the (laughs) politics, it's just more arguing, more fighting. It's gotten to the point where if one political party literally said the sky is blue, the other political party would say no, it isn't. It's red. (laughs) So I do not see hope there. But where I do see hope is in what people are doing, because people are acting. So countries are acting. My home country of Canada has a price on carbon. It plans to ban coal, as does Finland. Um, The country of Ireland is divesting from fossil fuels. Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund is also divesting from oil and gas exploration. Hmm. Uh, BlackRock, which is one of the biggest investment firms in the world, they manage $7 trillion. They just announced they were divesting from coal. And that sent shockwaves throughout the investment community. The reinsurance industry is leading the charge on really trying to price climate risks appropriately. And cities all around the world are going carbon neutral, are building resilience to climate change. They're is action happening but we don't hear these stories enough and we need to hear these stories because we need to recognize that there is a better future that's possible we need to be able to understand what that future looks like if we're only motivated by fear fear will help us outrun the bear fear will help us address a short-term emergency but fear will not take us through the long-term haul it is to fix climate change. That's why we need courage and we need hope. And that is fueled by acting ourselves and by seeing others act too, by recognizing that we are not alone. There are billions of us around the world who want this better world.
0: Catherine Hayhoe, inspiring message. Thank you so much for, um, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech University. Of course, it's not just academics who are helping shape the narrative around climate change. It's us journalists as well. This is no easy task. I know I find myself being torn between needing to show people the harsh realities of climate change as it's affecting people now. That work has taken me all over the world, including to hurricane disaster zones and the like. But, you know, I'm torn between those harsh realities, which we really do have to see, and the quest for solutions. Talking about one without the other can seem almost irresponsible. Focus only on solutions without understanding the problem, and you give people no incentive to change. But focus only on the problem, and you can drive people to a false sense of hopelessness and despair. Another journalist thinking about all of this is Jan de Decken, who last year launched something he calls the Polar Project.
2: I'm Jan de Decken. I'm 34 years old. And for the past 10 years, I've been reporting from a bit everywhere around the world mostly Latin America, Africa and Asia. And one thing I noticed again and again was that about anywhere where I went, people were having difficulties with changing weather patterns. Uh, When I came up with the idea to create this media platform, a platform to tell these stories two years ago, people talked about climate change as something that only would be happening in the future. Uh, my ultimate trigger to launch this project was when I heard the speech of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres at the yearly UN Assembly in New York. He was talking to the world leaders in terms of, if we don't act now, in five years this disaster will happen, in ten years this catastrophe will come upon us. Scientists are clear that such extreme weather is precisely wh- what their models predict will be the
1: new normal of a warming world. We have had to update our language to describe what is happening. We now talk of mega hurricanes, superstorms, rain bombs. And it's time to get off the path
2: of suicidal emissions. That storytelling was completely wrong. You can't mobilize people with what will happen in 10 years. A year and a half ago, the Flemish media minister came with a new institution they were founding to sponsor innovative uh, journalism. I got a grant from this fund and with them I I really proposed this idea that we needed better storytelling around climate change, that the the current climate change storytelling was obviously failing. If so many people turn against such a logical idea, if if so many people go hating on the, the Greta Thunbergs of this world, Obviously, we're not telling the right story because climate change shouldn't be such a divisive issue. You know, the planet renews itself, and I just am doubtful that man is causing the warming because these experts have been saying this for years. The experts said there was going to be a Y2K meltdown. Didn't happen. Experts say there was Russian collusion. Didn't happen. Experts said there was going to be President Hillary Clinton. Didn't happen. The name The Polar Project for me refers to uh, the polar caps that are melting. It's also a reference to this polarization of the debate. By the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. What I'm saying is the planet's on fire. Grow the up. We don't want to point fingers because the resistance of a lot of people is understandable. Social scientists have shown that an apocalyptic discourse reaches the opposite effect. When a problem seems too big to deal with, people will shut themselves off, and you won't turn that around just by hitting the same button again and again, saying we're running towards big disasters. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis, got it? We have to really create a positive, inclusive story on climate change. I think that's far out the most difficult, and the most needed challenge uh, right now. So that's also the the main mission we put forward with the Polar Project to to look at good examples around the world and to really um, try to go find this inclusive story that we can gather a lot of people around that makes people really believe that a carbon-neutral society will also improve their lives instead of being a burden for them. These stories can't be about numbers or signs or emission norms because people really don't care about those. They have to be about people, about people we can relate to and and stories that touch us. In our most recent investigation, we established a connection between climate change and sex slavery in India. I spoke to dozens of victims of human trafficking in different parts of the country, and many of them got into this vulnerable position because their lands became unlivable.
1: The glaciers are melting, so there's constant flooding and people are displaced and they don't have homes, they don't have any jobs. Many of the girls in this red light district are from the Sundarbans, uh, climate refugees made homeless by constant floods. And uh, the traffickers go and prey upon such girls and bring them here.
2: With the Polar Project we we try to to have a cross-media approach using all the available media to get this story out to a wider audience, for example, really involving uh, the stage, we do a lot of events. I collaborate with artists. Uh, we shot a virtual reality documentary with a 360 degrees camera in Brazil. Here you can hear an audio clip of a friend of mine who's a really good poet here back in Belgium, and I asked her to do to to write poetry based on this story in Brazil. And you have gelijk. Terwijl ik sliep, werden in het Amazonebeke maracuja en papaja gewekt. We put the poet live on stage, and then we give our audience VR-glasses. Suddenly, then they are standing in those indigenous villages that they just saw on the big screen that they usually would only see on the big screen. And suddenly, they are standing, listening to this beautiful, immersive poetry. Die nacht droom ik van een arend hoger dan de middagzon in spanwijd. We purposely combine information the, the journalistic approach with art with beauty because art touches people because people care about what they find to be beautiful. Then after all of that we show the audience images of indigenous land a few months later burned to the ground and we tell people that when they go to any of our big supermarket chains they have no way of knowing whether the soy in their ready meals comes from the legally destructed lands or not. Because European lawmakers have made rules about practically anything that enters into the European Union, but have always refused or have never cared enough to make rules about soy and meat coming from protected areas or conflict areas entering our markets. I think this is an example of, of where the essence of the Polar Project come together. We try to tell people... That's where impact can be made. We uh, we ask them or we tell them that they can demand those rules from the leadership. In the same time, we are not telling them you are eating Brazilian meats or you are guilty of those attacks against Brazilian indigenous people. Because we know that that storytelling doesn't work. If people feel attacked, they, they retreat themselves, then they will respond, then they will attack you. And I think the essence is that in that is that if people feel they're being informed, then they will do whatever they want with that information, but they can react against it. But If you want to, people to, to feel a certain message, they, they have to feel not that they're being informed, but that they themselves come to a conclusion. And I think that those immersive ways of, of storytelling and using this beauty is a way uh, to do so. The response was as we hoped it would be. People felt more immersed, they felt more connected to the main characters. Um, indigenous people living in the Amazon rainforest, that's something that most people in Western Europe, they have no clue about, about their lives, they're very different, but then suddenly if you look behind you and there's a few indigenous kids playing, staring at you, it, it becomes a lot more real. People can't get away with just reading a 15 minutes article online and then going to the next one. And one hour later, they've forgotten about it. We immerse them three hours, we, we show them the documentary, we show them music. Our last uh, big investigation that we launched on India, the documentary was a quite depressing depressive story. And and we did a and A afterwards. I, I gave some more explanations on what was happening in India and why and how this was all related to climate change, and and people were very impressed. And um, and some people came telling me like, "Wow, this was really a, a bummer of my evening." And then but then we put a band on stage, a band that knows the climate issue very well, but in the same time they're a Latin fusion band making people dance, and then. In that same evening I think you can create uh, different emotions and uh, it's something that different programmers of events told me that it's very risky and usually it doesn't work to try to combine music with documentary and, and hard topics uh, with a party mood but we tried it and, and the first responses were actually very positive.
0: Jan de Decken is a journalist based in Belgium. To learn more about the Polar Project, you can check out our website, foreignpolicy.com the moment There, you can also find a link to Catherine Hayhoe's PBS series, Global Weirding. Next week on Heat of the Moment, water is our most vital resource, but climate change is making weather patterns and seasonal rainfall less predictable. Drought and water scarcity are increasingly threatening the lives and livelihoods of vulnerable communities all around the planet. We'll travel to Niger to see how new investments in drip irrigation are helping farmers adapt to this harsh reality.
1: We need to develop the irrigation industry to help people find work. If people can work in agriculture, then they're not sitting around in their villages. They won't move abroad. They'll be able to create value, enrich their lives and provide for their families. That's
0: next week on the podcast. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.